0: This is Capitalize Your Finances, the show representing you, a select group of excited, ready, and fired-up listeners seeking to potentially maximize your money moves and get after it. We don't settle for generic advice of always and nevers. Our currency is our intellect, and we constantly seek the logical way of likely creating advantages to potentially maximize wealth for our personal and unique situations. The show brings you this step-by-step framework to capitalize your finances in the aspects of your financials situation, and we strive to explore strategies and ideas to potentially help you capitalize on your financial decisions. We are Capitalizers, and this is our show.
1: Welcome back to Capitalize Your Finances. As always, I am your host, Chris Christopher Aponiotu, the Cap in Capitalize. In today's special guest is one of my favorite financial authors, newly found financial authors, the author of The Joys of Compounding, Gautam. Gautam, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And and Gautam, before we get into the questions, uh, and we're going to dive right into your book, I got to tell you, I've read a lot of financial books and just books in general for the show. And and, uh, admittedly, not every book is the best book out there. And not only did I fall in love with your book, my wife can attest to this, I was actively saddened when the book was done because i wanted more which you know is very selfish for me to say because i know how much time you committed to this book and and i just wanted to give you a compliment in front of uh, all of our capitalizers you did an exceptional exceptional job and for those of you that are listening in if you've not already done so you need to go buy the joys of compounding now let's get right into it and um, you know, I'm not going to go line by line through your book or any of that, but I, I picked out some pieces that I think would be very valuable for our listeners. And then selfishly, I have some questions on it as well. And uh, one of the the points in the, the introductory chapter, um, you mentioned what I think all most successful investors know, which is read a lot and compound your learning. Now, I took this to serious heart back in 2014, and it started to pay dividends for me in about 2020. So my question to you is actually on retention, because you're really big on retaining information. So when you're reading, whether it's for fun or your annual reports, you name it, what are some of the techniques that you use to absorb as much information as possible, and in particular, uh, to when you were developing your own investment
2: framework? I think the best way to imbibe any learning for life is to actually put it into practice because uh, you know, we cannot retain much of what we just uh, do by cursory reading, but if we try to implement all those learnings on a daily basis as, as much as possible, then those learnings tend to remain with us for a long period of time. So for example, in my book, there is a chapter titled Living Life According to the NSCO Card in which I've talked about how Buffett used to embody certain attributes during his Buffett partnership years in the 1950s and 60s. Buffett exhibited certain characteristics and attributes like honesty, sincerity, integrity, authenticity. And it's not enough for me to just preach about these values in my book. I need to also put them into practice. So I've just tried to imbibe those uh, qualities as a way of life in my uh, fund or in my, you know, dealing with other stakeholders in my life. So I think the more you practice what you learn and implement it, that is how you tend, tend to absorb the learnings and and imbibe them for the rest of your life.
1: Yeah, that is so true. Well, and, and, and as far as practicing goes and implementing, obviously it takes time. And we've talked about this on our show Um pseudo ad nauseum the the J curve of life and uh for those of you that are are new to the show listening in basically the J curve if you think about it a J dips and then it gets taller as you draw it in life if you're going to compound your success you're going to take a step back and then eventually it's going to pay uh, dividends and uh Gautam, for for you, you know, in, in twenty eighteen, you talk about when you started to to break even, if you will, with your hard earned effort. What were some of the most valuable pieces of reading that you discovered and absorbed in the ditches of your J curve?
2: I think the biggest uh, takeaway which I got during that particular time period was that instead of trying to read hundreds of books, it is better to reread the classics on a regular basis and just keep going back to the timeless uh, pieces of wisdom in those texts because we just tend to spread ourselves too wide and thin in the, in the endeavor to read as many books as possible but it's not about quantity per se it's more about the quality. So I think going you know you should just try to go as much deep into a subject as you can because at the end of the day our society rewards specialization and excellence. If you try to spread yourself too, too broadly, then you'll never be able to specialize and you won't be able to achieve excellence in your field. So it's good to have a fundamental working knowledge of the basic ideas from the different disciplines like Charlie Munger Advocates. But if you want to achieve high levels of expertise in any particular subject, it's better to revisit the classics uh, from the uh, publication world in those fields from time to time. And it's also a good practice to bookmark the great content which you keep reading and coming across on the internet many of us when we read a great piece of content we just forget about it after a while but if you actually bookmark the content or take a printout start uh, underlining it taking notes basically i'm a big advocate of active engagement as a reader so when you are reading you should be actively engaged with the text and actually taking copious notes and uh, also noting down your learnings and big key learning points from whatever you're reading. I think this goes a long way in improving you both as a reader and as a learner. And most importantly, as an implementer. And did you
1: have any books off the top of your head, just surface level that really hit you? Of course, other than your own.
2: Uh, The Buffett Partnership uh, Letters from the 1950s and 60s. uh, The Berkshire Hathaway Annual Letters from 1970s till date. And uh, also... Munger, uh, Munger also used to uh, share his thoughts in Vesco Financial's letters in the beginning. That was also a good read. So, I think uh, m- most of what we investors know about investing, most of it has come from Ben Graham, Phil Fisher, Buffett, Munger and the like. So, there is no you know need to reinvent the wheel. All the information and the knowledge and the wisdom is out there. We just need to have the willingness and the desire to learn. That is what is a scarce commodity. This willingness, this passion to learn and improve ourselves, that is uh, what is really lacking because most people succumb to instant gratification. They don't want to go through that initial value of disappointment, which uh, every you know successful person encounters. So you, you mentioned about the J-curve, but before you get on the exponential part of the J-curve, you have to necessarily go through what I call the value of disappointment. This is where persistence and resilience will, cal- will carry you through. if you can just last slightly more than your competition and not give up then you'll be a winner because compounding bestows its magic and benefits upon you only after testing your patience and conviction to the fullest so i entered the uh, stock markets in 2007 but it was not till 2018 uh, like i mentioned in my book that my learning curve really took off that is when i I was able to experience the power of compounding knowledge and action because now when I went back to those old texts and old books again, I was able to reconnect the dots much better. And I was able to get newer learnings from the same books. This is how knowledge compounds. So basically the book itself changes for you. And it's like quite remarkable how you're able to get far more insights from the same book. Once you've become a more wiser person.
1: Well, and, and, you know, the, the theme of all of that is, uh, the idea of flawless execution in the fundamentals. And, you know, it, I would argue when, when you wrote that, that's single-handedly one of the most important quotes of one's lifetime. And uh, we talk about it on our show in Capitalizing uh, One's Finances, uh, the framework. It's paramount to understand this. And this is no different than your investment strategy. And so my question to you is: is, what do you do to keep your your bumpers on, so you stick to the flawless execution of those fundamentals and you don't stray into the dangerous world of emotion.
2: So let's go back to uh, you're referring to the section on first principles thinking. So let me connect this to the world of investing. The three first principles of investing were laid out by Ben Graham in the book titled The Intelligent Investor. The first principle is, look at stocks as part ownership in a business Principle number two, look at volatile st- price fluctuations or Mr. Market as your friend rather than rather than your enemy and try to profit from his manic uh, mood swings. And number three, focus on having a margin of safety in the valuations which you pay for any business at all points of time. If you simply stick to these three first principles and if you engage in what I write as flawless execution of the fundamentals, then you will do very well. As an investor, or in any field in, part, or any field for that matter, whatever field you choose, there there will be two or three key first principles of that particular field. Learn them, imbibe them, follow them consistently for a long period of time, and success is literally ensured.
1: Well, in, in to to summarize, uh, Charlie Munger, who you mentioned earlier, and you also mentioned Phil, uh, mentioned Philip Fisher, which we'll get into later on in the show. You mentioned that we must specialize most of the time, but spend some time understanding the broader ideas of the world. And um, when you and I first met, one of the things that we bonded on is we both live very concentrated lives. Uh, So my question is, and this is maybe just selfish for for my knowledge, um, outside of investing, what are your major passions and how have they made you a better investor?
2: I think, uh, you know, outside of investing, you know, my I've got certain hobbies and interests. For example, the first passion is obviously reading as widely as possible and on different disciplines. That has helped me very, very greatly and in, in my investing activity. But generally, over time, as you age and mature, you just want you know, much more uh, calm, comfort, stability in, in your life. And these attributes of having a calm temperament go a long way in improving your patience levels. So being patient is a big competitive advantage in today's world in which most fund managers and investors are looking for the EPS print in the next upcoming quarter. But if you can simply take a longer term view of the next three to five years, that itself gives you such a big advantage as an investor because that particular field in which you're competing then is very less crowded. And this is and the way to stand out in any particular field is to you know, enter a sphere or a space which is less crowded. So, by playing the long-term game, you give yourself a big advantage and improve your base rates or your probabilities of success. Just to give you some numbers, there has been never any rolling 20-year period in the history of the US stock market when the S&P 500 did not give a positive return. So the longer you extend your time horizon it's almost you know a near certainty that you end up with positive returns in the stock markets but over any one year time frame the chances of you making a positive return is equally split 50 50. but as you keep extending your time horizon the probabilities of you making a positive return keep going up over time so i think it's very important also to keep you know some diverse interests or some interests outside the uh, investing field as well because if you keep thinking about investing all the time and if you're just thinking about stocks all the time, then you'll become prone to over trading and churning your portfolio excessively because you know you, you always then start to get this urge of doing something. And this is a field in which inactivity is rewarded disproportionately. In most fields, you know when you are inactive, then basically you're considered to be less productive. But in the investing field, being less active is the most productive thing you can do. Because that frees up a lot of time. And you can use that time for your other uh, creative pursuits. Like spending uh, time on learning a new skill. Engaging in philanthropy. Spending time with family and friends. Or you know exploring the world. Or basically just trying to have some diversity in your thought process. And over time you will realize that there are so many different fields. Unconnected. Seemingly unconnected fields. From which you get to learn something. Which will help you. Develop a valuable skill as an investor.
1: Well, and in there, there's a couple of things. Obviously, past performance does not guarantee future returns. For those compliance people that are listening in, however, you mentioned that in the rolling periods in your book, which is great, and that's something we talk about in 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 my book as well. Um, you mentioned uh, on behavioral temperament. I wanted to ask you really quickly on this. Fifty years ago those that had an edge were the ones that had more information. It was pretty black and white. But today, uh, the ones with the better behavioral temperament are the ones that have an edge. So I'm just curious, surface level, next 50 years, in regards to gaining a competitive advantage in investing, do you see the current behavioral patients being the best competitive advantage? Or do you see something even more?
2: So, Chris, traditionally, there have been three sources of edge for the individual investor. Number one, like you mentioned, the information edge. But with the advent of the internet, the information edge is now gone completely. The second source of edge traditionally for investors has been the analytical edge. But with more and more smart people entering the investing profession, even the analytical edge is fast getting compressed. But the one edge which is the most durable and sustainable, in my view, is that of behavior and temperament. And this is because today an investor's edge is less about knowing more than others about a specific stock. It has more to do with the willingness and the ability and the patience to take a long-term view about the intrinsic value of a business. So if you can simply focus on the key variables in a business, the competitive advantages in a business and whether those competitive advantages are sustaining over time, rather than getting caught up in the daily noise that will help you to stay the course with this big winners because, you know, we have got so many, we keep talking about, you know, many anecdotes and uh, case studies that if you had invested in Apple in 1980s, or if you had invested in Apple post the release of the iPhone, you would have, you would have XX amount today. But over the last 15 years, since the since the introduction of the iPhone, the Apple stock has fallen a lot in percentage terms, many times only if you were thinking like a business analyst and you had you exhibited good behavior only then you could have been able to hold on to the stock through all the turbulent up, ups and downs and made a lot of money so it's very once you have purchased a stock the most important thing you need to focus on is your personal behavior that's it and that's why in my view this is the single biggest competitive advantage for investors today being able to keep your head down and focus on the key variables at hand, that has become much more important.
1: Well, and and, uh, one aspect that you and I, uh, another aspect that we bonded over when we connected was uh, the idea of minimalism and simplify, simplify, simplify. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we both agree that diversification can be a little bit overblown, and... I would go a step further to say that it's constantly preached by those that shouldn't be preaching it in the first place. But that being said, uh, every investor that I've gotten to know has some sort of temperament toward that matter. And I, I wanted to ask you on, on your personal uh, personal temperament uh, regarding uh, your portfolio. I mean, is it five businesses? Is it 10, five in a rental? I mean, what is Gautam's temperament like?
2: So as per a study published in the international bestseller, A Random Book on Wall Street, By Burton Merkel, it was shown that as the number of stocks in a portfolio reaches 25 names, the incremental volatility reducing benefits become near zero. So this range of 20 to 25 stocks is the sweet spot for an active investor seeking to outperform the market. At that level of holdings in the portfolio, you have captured all of the benefits of diversification, yet the number of stocks you need to know thoroughly is still manageable. So that is the broad number with which I work in my fund Uh, it is around 20 20 to 25 holdings and uh, the asymmetric risk reward bets on which uh, the probabilities of success is highly in my favor there I like to allocate a higher percentage going up to even 10% at times so those opportunities are very rare they come just once or twice a year at most but when they present themselves then you have to start thinking like Munger and Buffett think in terms of opportunity cost. The great investors always think in terms of opportunity cost. And if stock A is far superior to an existing stock holding B, then you have to take a dispassionate call and sell stock B, even though there may not be anything necessarily wrong with the business of stock B. But if stock A provides you return potential, which is almost double or more of that of stock B, then you have to just to have practice emotional detachment. stock b and just sell it and because that is how you'll get the cash to deploy in stock a right i mean to deploy a higher allocation in a particular stock you need to have a higher level of cash to deploy and where will that cash come from it will come from the lowest conviction holdings in your portfolio so all of us for example if you have 15 20 stocks in our portfolio inevitably there will be two or three stocks in which we had low conviction to begin with but still we basically initiated them with low allocation You'll notice that in most of the cases, these low allocation weight weight stocks will be the first ones to be cut out when you come across those great opportunities periodically from time to time. Sure. Well, and, and
1: uh, you know when we first met, we spoke about like our paths to uh, capitalizing our finances, so to speak. And although we have different avenues of achieving what uh, what we'd call. Uh, or what Charlie Munger would call the, the final pillar of, of wealth, which is true financial independence, um, were nonetheless either getting to that point, which is me, or in some cases, nearly there, you. And once you reached this, this level of financial enlightenment, so to speak, uh, in what ways did your investing analysis improve?
2: I think the single biggest way investing analysis improves is because of more time at your disposal. See, financial independence for me simply means freedom. Freedom to do what I want to do, with whom I want to do it, for as long as I want to do it, whenever I want to do it. So it's all about having control over your time. So I always tell people that the rich have money, but the wealthy have got control over their time. And by being financially independent, which means that having sufficient passive income to take care of your annual living expenses, you basically completely relieve yourself from the stress of unpredictable employment. You don't have to depend on clients, a boss or a paycheck. You can design your own rich life. And for me, a rich life is basically being able to devote a lot of time to things which I'm very interested in doing. So be it reading or be it investing or be it watching movies or going to restaurants or going for travel. So basically I'm now time rich. So for me, being time-rich is more important than being money-rich because if you're just working all the time, trying to earn more and more money, then you you deprive yourself of the luxury of time. And time is a non-renewable resource. Buffett often tells us that he can buy anything with his money, but he cannot buy more time. So this gives us a good framework for defining a rich person in today's day and age. It's someone for whom Basically, money is no longer a constraint. You know, and basically, for whom more importantly, time is not a constraint. You basically want to have a lot of time. Because you know, we you know become old too soon and wise too late. By the time we are 70, 80 years old, that is when we realize that, you know, okay, you know, we have accumulated all this wealth, but now we don't have the time or the health to enjoy it. There is a great book I would recommend to all your listeners today. It's called Die With Zero. I am yet to read that book, but now, having read the gist of that book, I'm very interested to read that book. What that book basically talks about is that many dollar millionaires, by the time they die, they have saved, they basically leave behind almost 80% of their life's accumulated savings to their children or to some philanthropic causes. But they are unable to spend all that money. And what this book talks about is that how you should, you know, not just focus on investing and saving all the time you need to also learn how to enjoy that that hardened wealth along the way so there's a time for everything in life so it's very good to be balanced as a person i think you know this wisdom i've just got in the last few years now i try to you know outside of investing also i've tried to spend a lot of time on recreation entertainment entertainment and also spending time with family and friends but uh, i'm very blessed that you know this uh, stage in my life i'm able to have a lot of time. I think for me, time is now become more valuable than money per se.
1: That's awesome. Well, in in, in speaking uh, to a, a related question on that, uh, one of my biggest fears, and I'll just be vulnerable here, is is once uh, Stephanie, my my wife and I, reach that level where our investments play pay, excuse me, for our day to day livelihood, the the drive that got us to that point could be no more and did you have any similar thoughts when you were building versus when you got to your, your point now and what was it like in reality once you achieved that that feat? Is, is the drive still there? It just takes another form is it, is it heightened? Are
2: you more carefree? I mean what is it like? The drive basically dies down If you are working in something which you are not truly passionate about, if you are working in a job or in a professional career that you're not enjoying and you're just counting your days and trying to just reach to that level of uh, rich net worth as soon as possible, then obviously the drive to work and the ambition will die down. But if I always tell people that when passion meets profession, like in my case, then wealth and success follows because You know, even uh, I was able to quit my job two years ago, I was no longer dependent dependent on a salary income. I was able to venture out on my own and start my own business. The thing is that because I'm so passionate about investing in the Indian stock market, so when I started my India fund, because I was already passionate about investing in Indian Indian equities, when this new profession began for me, it didn't make any difference to my enthusiasm levels or energy levels whatsoever. I just like you know practically eat, dream, breathe Indian equities all the time. This is my passion. This is what I think about all the time. And I think uh, you know when you start looking forward to your Monday mornings rather than your Friday evenings, you know that you're living your igikai. Ikigai is a Japanese concept for living a life of fulfillment, and it occurs when there is an intersection of a few elements: what the world needs, what the world can pay you for, what you're good at. And what you and what you love to do. So basically, when all these four elements intersect, you've achieved your eggyka in life, and that is when you really start getting that amazing burst of energy every morning when you get up from bed, and you're just, you know, in a very happy state of mind all the time, in a very enthusiastic state state of mind all the time. And you know, research studies have shown that you know people who are enthusiastic about what they're doing on a daily basis also tend to live longer. I mean, look at Buffett and Munger. They are so enthusiastic and and passionate about what they're doing, even at this age, you know, that in their 90s, they're still able to answer questions, unscripted questions, non-stop for more than six hours at the Berkshire Hathaway Annual Meeting every year in front of thousands of people. Where do they get this energy from? It's from following their passion and doing something which they love to do every day. So I think that's why I always encourage people, you know, if you really want to live a happy life and a long life, especially, you know, uh, in your old age also, if you want to continue to be happy and engaged and active, try to find something which you're passionate about because that will last with you till your final breath.
1: I love that. The only thing I would add as an asterisk is, because I I too, I love my Monday mornings. Uh, Friday afternoons can sometimes kind of be meh. However, the asterisk is, Make sure you're also getting as much sleep. And if you decide to have children like we have, uh, the first six months are going to be a blur. So just grind it out and try to forget the sleepless nights. <laughs> uh, but, but other than that, I agree with everything that you said, and, and I love it. Now, uh, Peter Kaufman's uh, five qualities of investment advisors, which I loved, are total integrity, Deep fluency in your work and commitment to clients. Fee structure fair in both directions. Uncrowded investment advice in a long runway like a like a young manager. And you, he, he mentions that if you ever find one investment advisor with all five of these qualities, put money there immediately and put as much as you're allowed to put with him. Uh, my question, or with them, excuse me. Uh, my question is, out of the five what would you say is the most important to you?
2: Total integrity, because you want to treat clients the same way as you would like to treat yourself if you were an outside client. So, you know, when you set up a a hedge fund or a private fund, just try to think from the client's perspective, because see, for any business, the lifeblood is the customer, the client, right? If we, it's my firm belief that if we keep doing right by by our customers, by our clients over the long run, the business outcome will take care of itself. So first and foremost, practice very high levels of integrity because money management is a position of very high fiduciary responsibility. And rather than trying to, you know, just uh, account a few extra percentage points of return during a bull market by taking on excessive risks, focus on long-term survival and also try to put yourself in your client's shoes. I mean, because many of these people have worked very hard throughout the years to to save aside some money for the retirement, which they've entrusted to you as a fund manager. And now it is your duty to treat their money with the same level of respect as you would respect your own money. So this is very, very important to be on the same side as your clients. And also, if you have skin in the game by putting your own personal money on the line as well in your fund, and you're invested alongside your, your clients in the fund, that goes a long way in establishing trust and and building goodwill for yourself.
0: Capitalizers, this episode is sponsored by the best-selling book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. Regardless of where you're at in your financial life, whether you're just beginning to express interest and commitment to your personal finances, at the pinnacle of your career, winding down into retirement, or thinking about your legacy for future generations, this book walks you through every step of the way so you can succeed on your terms and with your own values and passions guiding you. After reading this book, you will officially have Christopher A. Poniotu, The Cap in Capitalize, in your back pocket, guiding you in detail through every step of the way so that you can take charge of your finances, not the other way around. Head on over to Amazon.com today and start capitalizing your finances to the fullest with this incredible book, Capitalize Your Finances, the how-to financial framework that takes you from compoundingly clueless to monetarily magnificent. And now, back to the episode.
1: Well, and you mentioned uh, in your chapter, the keys to success in life is delayed gratification. And this is switching gears a little bit, uh, but not too much. You mentioned uh, several companies that have done particularly well, and I'm not going to name the specifics, okay? Go read the book. But uh, that one must have uberly patient, or must be uberly patient, excuse me, to own and reap the eventual reward. We talked about that earlier. But uh, out of curiosity what has been the company that has tested your patience the most hmm
2: so there have been uh, you know so many companies in the past so in, a, in the book i talk about how you know all long term winners go through long periods of consolidation for example berkshire hathaway not a stock recommendation this is just for illustrative and educational purposes so berkshire hathaway stock which has compounded at nearly nearly 18 to 20% over the last uh, 40 years it has basically encountered many five-year periods, which I mentioned in my book as well, and it gave zero return. There have been cases like Adobe systems from March 2000 to March 2013. For 13 long years, the business kept on delivering, but the stock gave zero returns to investors. So Mm -hmm. be very mindful of the price, the valuation, which you're paying for a business. Because during sectoral bull markets, we tend to lose sight of valuations. We pay any price for any business, we, try, we tend to equate high growth businesses with being good stocks. That's not the case. What matters for successful investing is not how fast a particular industry is going to grow. What matters is, is the business earning more than its cost of capital? Whether it has got sufficient reinvestment opportunities within the business at high returns on capital? And whether the business has a competitive advantage which can sustain those high returns on capital for a long period of time? These are the three fundamental tenets of investing in a high-quality business. This is how Buffett and Munger have made billions of dollars for Berkshire Hathaway shareholders over the last many decades. And this is the template for long-term investing success.
1: Well, in uh, speaking of analyzing a company and and reaping the rewards of success, uh, a fellow investor, Monish Pabrai, uh, is known for having a rather long checklist. And last time I, I checked, I, I think—which was not a pun—I um, believe it's up to 172 questions, which is just wild. And so, I, my question to you is: Is do you have a, a, a similar framework? And if so, how many questions would you say are on your checklist now? And and do you go through the same questions in order? Uh, for every company or is there variability once you get to a certain question?
2: So very good question. And uh, in fact, many of my clients in the U S ask me that how am I able to evaluate the management quality of companies in India while living and working in the U.S.? I S I'm able to do that through the use of a comprehensive corporate governance checklist. For example, I look for any frequent change in auditors, any qualifications raised by auditors, are there any abnormal auditor fees, is the auditor fees growing faster than revenue growth? Is the company having a long list of unaudited foreign subsidiaries with itself? Does the management have any political affiliations or any criminal proceedings against them? Has the company been subjected to any regulatory raids in the past or any cases of debarment by the capital market regulator? What is the, what is the history of attrition or churn in the C-suite of the company? Is the key management personnel drawing excessive remuneration? blowing large sums of minority shareholder money on building lavish corporate offices. What is the history of equity dilution by the company? Is the uh, insider ownership coming down over time? Are the insiders pledging their shares to raise debt? What is the history of sharing wealth with minority shareholders through buybacks and dividends? Are the related party transactions very significant in size? What is the view of the current and ex employees of the company? You can get this information on websites like glassdoor.com. What are the industry experts and reputed reputed investors saying about the company? Are the insiders running a similar business as the listed entity in their privately held company? Because that may lead to a conflict of interest. Also check whether the revenue, revenue recognition policies are too aggressive or are they conservative. Check whether the business is working capital intensive. What is the trend in accounts receivables and inventory days? Check for trends in the historical cash flow from operations to net income ratio and check for trends in the uh, historical uh, ca- uh, cash flow from operations to EBITDA ratio because that this will tell you how much of the reported profits are being converted into cash flow. Check for any abnormally high margins versus the peers in a commodity industry because it's very unusual for a company to be earning 30% margins while its other peers in the same commodity industry are earning 10% margins. Check for any excessive write-offs of assets in the past. Check for any capitalization of routine operating expenses. For example, in the pharmaceutical industry, research and development is a common line expense item, but some managements resort to capitalizing and amortizing those expenses over a period of time to smoothen smoothen their earnings. So that's a red flag. Check for trends in the leverage or the debt-to-equity ratio. Any cases of statutory payments defaults in the past. Does the company have high contingent liabilities or any off balance sheet obligations? For example, has the management given a guarantee on the debt of the other group companies through the listed entity? Now, some people may ask, uh, you know, what does need to do so much hard work? Who looks at balance sheet and cash flow in a bull market, let alone the footnotes to the accounts. And I always tell them that when you're in a position of fiduciary responsibility, And managing other people's hard-earned savings, then you owe it to them to reciprocate the trust in you. And following this comprehensive corporate governance checklist has helped me avoid many landmines from the Indian stock market. So, you know, it's not perfect because you know even after our best efforts as investors, we will occasionally go wrong. All that we are trying to do as investors all the time, Chris, is we are trying to get the odds on our side as much as we can. That is all that investing is all about. Because We have to accept the fact that investing is a probabilistic activity. What does that mean? That in a probabilistic field, all the high performers focus only on one thing. Process, process, process. By trying to focus on process, we maximize our chances of a good outcome.
1: Well, and I got to tell you, for those of you listening in, if you can rattle that off verbatim after listening one time, you will get a free copy of my book. Uh, That was fantastic. And uh, one of the recommendations that you make is uh, when analyzing a quarterly or semi-annual results of of a company, investors should first check the balance sheet for any red flags. And and you mentioned that just now. Uh, And that's even before taking a look at the end of the statement. And you know, I'm I'm curious, surface level, why you would use uh, or why you would use that approach, and, and the reason why is like I personally tend to look at the income statement first uh, because in, in my mind, uh, profit and, and proper uses of it is more future indicative than a balance sheet. But I'm, I'm curious. I'm not trying to push back. I'm I just want to hear your thoughts.
2: Profits in any particular year, year maybe one time or ephemeral but balance sheet is what's what leads to the long-term survival of any business because balance sheet gives you the cash or the liquidity, which you have on your hand. And it also tells you how much liabilities and how much debt you have to service. So staying power for me is in any business is very, very important. And any business which has got a highly liquid balance sheet has has got staying power because what happens is when the next industry crisis hits, and all the highly leveraged and indebted competitors go down under and go belly up. These companies with highly liquid balance sheets and strong cash flow from operations, they tend to acquire their competitors and they capture market share. They tend to keep becoming stronger and stronger with each passing crisis. This is the final nuance which you get to learn only with the passage of time and with practical experience that balance sheet and cash flow profile is far more important than looking at the income statement in isolation.
1: I love that. And, and actually, the, the one thing, and you had me at staying power. Um, it, it's amazing to me how many companies have nothing to show for anything that they have. And like you said, it's really easy to do well when the economy is crushing. But one of my favorite quotes, when the tide goes out you quickly realize who is swimming naked. Now, uh, one of the ideas that you mentioned that struck me as uh, revolutionary is your idea of keeping an investment journal. And basically what, uh, for those of you that are curious, you keep your original ideas and and, uh, convictions behind your original ideas. And from time to time, you look back on why you made that purchase, and over time you get to learn uh, the validity of your reasoning. And uh, Gautam, for your journal, how detailed would you say uh, your journal is, and what have been the most valuable learnings um, from successes of the past?
2: So I'll tell you how I go about it first. So I keep a running Notepad. On my mobile phone, of all the key learnings or the big learnings which I get on a regular basis, almost on a daily basis. I've talked about this in my book, The Joys of Compounding, as well. That the moment you come across an aha moment or an eureka insight, please note it down immediately because you will not be able to recollect it later at a later date when it's required. We always tend to, you know, come across something great, but we just don't note it down. But when you note it down, then you can reference back to it later. And you never know when during a fortunate phase in your investing life, that particular insight can help you make a lot of money for yourself and your clients. So always make it a habit to note down things as you're learning them. So the first step is noting down in brief uh, about that learning in my my notepad on my mobile phone. And then later in the day or the next day, I sit down on my laptop, open my investment journal, which is an award document. And then I start organizing these uh, learnings or new thoughts along with their source links or, you know, some bullet points. That's a very soothing exercise for me because I really like fleshing out these points into my investment journal. And uh, it's become a very constructive investment diary for me. I think, uh, you know, if you make it a habit to not only keep track of your investing decisions, your buy, sell, hold decisions, but also keep, make a habit of noting down your learnings, your big learnings on a regular daily basis in your investment diary or investment journal, you will go a long way in improving as an investor, at least for me, this has been highly, highly constructive and very profitable over the last nine years.
1: Oh, I think that's awesome, and 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 I totally understand the therapy behind it. And uh, you know, not to get too technical, but <clears throat> you you do have a more technical part of your book where uh, you mention that you prefer, and, and I do as well, a business that produces a high return on invested capital and consistently reinvests a large portion of its earning at a similarly high return. And you mentioned that it is, quote, the holy grail of long-term value investing, end quote. But I would even take a step further and say it's the holy grail of a successful business. And so I'm curious from your business perspective, uh, running uh, a fund, would you categorize yourself and your business into that category?
2: Well, a very good question. But let me talk, you talk about my business. So yes, every year when I get uh, my profit sharing or my incentive fee for the year at the end of the year, rather than taking a cash payout and paying hefty, hefty taxes on it, I would rather prefer to simply reinvest it back into my fund to increase my ownership in the fund and to also avoid taxes because you, you want to basically see taxes create friction, taxes, brokerage, paperwork, commissions. All incidental incidental costs they create friction in the compounding process, and Charlie Munger said very beautifully the first rule of compounding is never interrupted unnecessarily. So if you can establish a passive recurring income stream which can take care of your basic living expenses, then you never have to you know take out the money you know, your uh, your performance fee from your fund. You can simply keep reinvesting it back. This is exactly what Berkshire Hathaway also does. So that's why you know what they what they do is the profits from uh, their uh, private companies they simply take out that cash flow and reinvest it back into another business which they hold within their wide conglomerate structure so this is a very efficient way so to, t- to, t- to save taxes and that's how you they basically became a, ca- a compounding machine so you want to ideally minimize the friction of taxes as much as you can and uh, just try to reinvest back into your business and you know you're you know if you're a businessman who's trying to also reinvest back into the business to make it more durable, more stronger over time. That's also a very good practice because, you know, you keep widening your moat over your competitors. And in today's world, in today's digital age, competition has become very intense across different fields. You want to keep, you know, just having some kind of a sustainable edge and keep building on it over time. And the way to do that is to keep reinvesting back into the business after taking care of your spending needs. So, Definitely a very good idea to keep reinvesting back into the business. But here I would like to add a very important point that many management teams, they start off with a great high return on capital business. And once they become big, then they start resorting to trying to build an empire. And then they engage in very expensive or so-called transformational mergers and acquisitions m and and they engage in value destructive activities like venturing into low return on, return on capital areas. They either venture into a new area on their own or they try to acquire a business in a completely unrelated area with a low return on capital. As a result, your return ratios dilute, they deteriorate and then then the stock witnesses valuation derating. And this is where investors face permanent loss of capital. So that's a very serious uh, sell signal for me. If I view gross capital misallocation by the management in any business. It's an automatic sell decision for me because you know I'm I entered that particular business with a particular thesis in mind that this business will earn good returns on capital for a long period of time. But after a certain point of time, if the management starts starts focusing on size and top line growth instead of profitability and sustenance of the business and the and the unit economics of the business, then that's a red flag for me.
1: Well, and in you know, as I was reading um as I was reading your book and, and getting into the nitty-grittiness of the investment process, I, I couldn't help but notice, and this comes back to Fisher uh, earlier, you are much more of a <clears throat> of a Fisherite, if you will, than a, a cigar butt uh, when it comes to investing. And, and for those of you that are as nerdy as Gautam and I in investing, you know exactly what that means. However, I imagine this. Uh, idea of buying quality businesses and and um in really embracing who fisher was and and charlie munger is i I imagine that took a little while i mean warren buffett jokes that he was late to the party so how long did it take you to shift that framework of of your understanding and do you still catch yourself every once in a while trying to, to to puff a cigar butt here and there
2: So I started educating. So even though I entered the markets in uh, 2007, I started educating myself on the value investing discipline from 2013 onwards. And till the end of 2017, I used to focus on uh, cheap valuation. And uh, the quality of the business did not really matter to me. But then the brutal bear market in India from January 2018 to March 2020 occurred. And during those 27 long month bear market, my investment philosophy completely transformed from being a highly concentrated investor who focused on statistically cheap securities i transformed into an investor focused on prudent diversification and an emphasis on quality quality of the business and quality of the management because many investors make large paper fortunes in a bull market but eventually lose all of it when the bear market eventually arrives and how much you're able to retain after the recovery from a bear market is far more important And how much paper profit you make during a bull market and quality of the business and the management matters the most in retaining long-term wealth. So now I focus primarily on quality of the business. And if I can find quality at a very reasonable or cheap price, all the more better.
1: I love that. And this could be, this could either be a surface level question or it could be very profound. So I don't know where this is going, but we're going to have some fun with it. So Uh, three of the super investors of our time, Templeton, Marks, and Ivanov, they all focus on market psychology to describe bull markets and not the technical stuff like uh, Cape Ratio, as, as an example. And as I was pondering this thought, on one hand, it makes the game of investing fairly easy, but then on the other, the challenge remains, if not, grows mightily. So for you has the psychology of the market mental model made it easier or more difficult for you to achieve your excellence on behalf of clients?
2: So there are many uh, indicators of investor exuberance near a market top. For example, you'll see a sharps rise in the stock price of holding companies. You'll start noticing on Telegram groups and WhatsApp groups about investors bragging about their recent returns or even daily returns for that matter, that my portfolio went up 5% today and that I'm targeting 30-40% returns over the next two, three years. That should be our minimum return expectations. And uh, you know, you'll know you see a lot of rocket emojis on WhatsApp groups and Telegram channels flying and on Twitter as well, flying all around. That shows a lot of investor exuberance. From the corporate side, if you see a flurry of IPOs from a fancied sector during a sectoral bull market, that's also indicative of a near-term market top and it's and one of the biggest indicators of uh, irrational exuberance is when there is emergence of new valuation metrics so people for example in the 2000 in dot com bubble they were talking about number of clicks on a website or the number of traffic on a website instead of talking about uh, revenues and profits fundamentals basically did not matter there were ups, apparently new metrics of valuation a similar thing happened in 2020 and 2021 SPAC mania when many traditional valuation metrics were thrown out of the window out here and people started talking that this time it is different a new a new era is upon us but it's never different only the you know players change or the you know market participants change but the you know end outcome is almost the same every time so from uh, november 2021 to december 2022 the nasdaq crashed more than 30% and hundreds of stocks crashed 60 70% and they will never go back to their life highs for a long period of time. The only st- uh, truly durable and strong companies with lots of cash on the balance sheet and st- true competitive advantages, those stock prices went back to their all-time highs when the markets recovered back again this year. And this is why I always tell people, you know, don't get carried away during a bull market. That's the time when it is very easy to let down a guard and go down the quality curve. But Buffett has taught us that we don't have to be more intelligent than the rest. We just have to be more disciplined than the rest. So, you know, this is timeless wisdom. Embrace it. If you can simply be more disciplined than your competition and not get carried away in a bull market, then you will be able to survive the subsequent bear market. And that is how you will be able to get to that long-term track record of 15 to 20 years.
1: Well, speaking of discipline... uh... To, to, to throw another technical one at you. So, you know, when you were describing, and, and I'm not going to get specifics of, of, of your business, but just in general, uh, position sizing of of a portfolio, you like to start at around the 3% mark. And again, this isn't just a fixed answer, but as a general rule, 3%, and then you work your way up and in increasing position as management proves itself, executes, you name it. But then you also sell down to the sleeping point, which I'm going to start using that term, by the way. I like that term, um, especially with my lack of sleep at home. But if an individual position becomes discomfortably large in terms of a overall percentage. So, you know, my question to you is uh, obviously for a fund where for the sake of this argument, once money stops flowing in, you're working with what you're working with. This makes perfect sense to me. Um, but for those of, of, of our listeners that won't be able to invest in a hedge fund or private equity or, or maybe have a, a planner for a while, um, you know, would this rule still apply for you or would you add as you have extra money, like a prorated amount throughout your portfolio to, to level out the three percenters, if you will?
2: No, Chris, I think risk management is extremely important, when you're, especially when you're managing public money. So in my Mm -hmm. India fund, for example, I don't let any single stock become more than 20% of the overall AUM by value because I don't want any single management team or single company to determine my and my client's life fortune, financial fortune. So I start trimming beyond that particular point and also don't let any single industry or sector go over 25% of the overall portfolio Mm -hmm. by value. So this is why I always say, you know, I sell down to the sleeping point, the allocation with which I'm comfortable. Because many a times after initial purchase, if the stock becomes a multi bagger, goes up 3x or 4x in a short span of time during a bull market, it can reach absurd valuation levels. That time you have to take a call to trim down the position and take some profits off the table.
1: Well, and, and, and you mentioned uh, one of the most passive, deadly biases out there anchoring bias. And uh, this is where, for, for those of you listening that are not aware, after one invests in a company as a result of a ton of analysis, uh, you hang on for too long. And uh, my question to, to you is, how do you balance that tightrope of anchoring bias between holding on to your companies within your portfolio in in cutting bait? Um, it, it's got to be easier for you, I would imagine, since you're allocating roughly 3%, Um Or I could also see it being more difficult because I could imagine, as you said, like if some uh, larger holdings catapult, um, you're going to want to slice off a portion of that
2: pie. Again, so just like in everything in life, this answer to this question is also context-specific. It has to be put in the right context. So I'll give you a case study example, not a stock recommendation. So three months earlier in March this year, I came across a spin-off situation, which I made the largest allocation in my India fund. I initiated that position, with the 10% allocation. And within two months, the stock went up 60%. So that stock basically became 16% weight in a span of two months almost. Even though the other positions also went up, but this stock became more than 16% weight in this span of two months. So now when Fresh Money is coming in, I'm not uh, doing a pro rata allocation to all the stocks in the portfolio, including this big winner. Now I look for pockets within the portfolio, which have not gone up as much, and which still offer a lot of value and good good growth at a reasonable price. And I allocate the fresh money to those kind of stocks. So as far as anchoring bias goes, I always tell people that the moment you buy a stock, forget the cost price which you pay for it, because otherwise this, this will forever affect your judgment. The cost price becomes irrelevant the moment you buy a stock. All that matters for a rational investor is, what are the prospects for returns, From the current market price, that's it. Because investing is all about the future. All investing is future investing. A probabilistic bet on what lies ahead. So just focus on what are the returns which you can get from a particular individual stock from the current price when you're looking to invest in it.
1: And I know we only have a couple a couple questions left before we're gonna have to cut bait with you and so I I will be efficient with your time as always and we're gonna have to have you back I will say not to be premature here because I have loved this conversation I am uh, oozing out of my spanks with excitement and uh, one question I've been dying to ask you and this is like the upper echelons of nerdiness so uh, when I was interviewing Adam Cecil who wrote the book where the money is uh one fact that struck me was how he valued intangible assets um, or, or modern age companies, because the general accepting accounting principles they're not exactly favorable towards these these new types of businesses. Which which I hate using that term, but you're going to know what I mean here pretty quickly. So in, instead of depreciating and amortizing research and development in marketing. Uh, generally accepting accounting principles, they don't allow for these write-offs over time. So they take it all in one year and earnings are just brutally depressed. So um, I've started experimenting with this in my own framework. But my question to you, Gautam, is in analyzing these issues, uh, do you take R&D and, and marketing and, and depreciate it over I don't know, 15 years, like a piece of real estate. Do you do five years like Adam? Like what is your take on that?
2: For any uh, new age business or any winner, take, winner takes all business like this technology businesses, which are referring to or software as a service businesses, which you are referring to always focus on the total lifetime value of any single customer. And here the income statement will give a misleading picture because like you rightly said, all the R and D and the marketing expenses expensed upfront in the income statement, instead of amortizing them over a period of time, these are fixed investments. These are like fixed for these kind of businesses. Investing in R and D and marketing is like investing in a fixed asset because the benefits from that expenditure is realized over a period of period of time. That is why the correct method like Adam has rightly mentioned is to amortize them over a period of five to 10 years and focus on the total lifetime value or the unit economics of the business. And in these kind of businesses, you have to do a basic discounted cash flow operation on a spreadsheet that, okay, this is what the income statement is showing, but what is going to actually happen to the free cash flow beyond a certain point of time, because you know, when the lifetime, the total lifetime value of any customer is positive, then the most rational course of action for any businessman is to try to acquire as many customers as possible by spending on R and D and marketing upfront. So, These businesses are long duration assets, their intrinsic value lies far out in the distant future and if you're confident about the sustainability and the unit economics of the business over a long period of time, then these businesses uh, make themselves amenable and uh, possible to value on a discounted cash flow basis. So I think that is where the analytical edge really comes into play. Awesome.
1: Well, and and as we close out the interview, uh, one of the things that I loved about um, not only through your book, but uh, also our our initial interaction was you've admitted your many mistakes along the way in in investing. Um, And and we know that investing, you only need to be right a few times to to make an impact. And uh, to continue your vulnerability um, before we closed out, what was the mistake that provided you with the most long-term knowledge that has led to your investment success?
2: So uh, one of the biggest uh, you know, losers, or rather the biggest loser in my investing journey so far was a stock in India called Bandhan Bank. And it is because I felt prey to what I call lacking bias for the management team. So I was very inspired by the, the, the story of uh, the top management, uh, the, the owner operator of the business and his uh, story of hardship, struggle and perseverance. And what I failed to do was I failed to separate the economics of the business from the personality of the person running the company. And I, should, I read a book called Bandhan, The Making of a Bank by Tamil Bandopadhyay, in which uh, the story of this particular owner-operator was detailed and I really admired him a lot for his high integrity levels. And as a result, even when the economics of the business went downhill and the business was deteriorating, I did not uh, sell the business because I did not pay heed to this evidence. But all the great investors are active seekers of truth. They are unemotional, dispassionate, objective. And these are the attributes which I failed to exercise in that particular investment. That time I was not running a fund. But in my personal account, this was a, a pretty big loss of this investment. But, it, but always tell people, see, the, when you have a positive attitude, you basically never lose. You just basically, you, you know, you learn and grow. So these mistakes tend to be your biggest teachers in life. And the intrinsic value of learning from one's mistake is highly valuable over an entire entire, uh, investing lifetime. So always treat these mistakes with respect, learn from them, grow as an investor, and just be grounded and humble at all times. Because in this profession, if you are not humble, then eventually the market will humble you. So always be grounded, be humble, accept that this is a probabilistic activity where you may go wrong in spite of your best efforts. Try to do the best by your clients. Have a long-term perspective, and always try to add value to people in your personal, social, and professional personal, social, and professional circles.
1: I love that. And Gautam, where can capitalizers go to best support you in your award-winning book, The
2: Joys of Compounding? So, to learn more about my book, uh, readers can visit thejoysofcompounding.com, and to learn more about my India fund, they can visit India.com. Awesome.
1: And for those of you listening in, thank you as always for tuning in to Capitalize Your Finances. For those of you that are new, welcome aboard. And if you have any questions about today's episode, please do not hesitate. Give us a call at 253 214 3050. That's 253 214 3050. And I would be more than willing. To answer any questions comments or concerns that you had regarding today's episode if you think of anyone that you would like to have on as a guest or you want to be a guest on our show head on over to capitalizepodcast.com submit your inquiries we look at it every single day as always for those of you tuning in this is chris ray to the captain capitalize and until next time keep capitalizing
3: The information provided should not be considered specific tax, legal, or investment advice, and it's not specific to any individual's personal circumstances. You should always seek counsel of the appropriate advisor prior to making any investment decision. All investments are subject to risk, including the loss of principal. This material was gathered from sources believed to be reliable. However, its accuracy cannot be guaranteed. This material should not be considered a solicitation of an offer to sell or buy any specific security or offering. Investors should consult a financial professional to determine whether risks associated with an investment in the shares are compatible with their investment objectives. S&P 500 Index is an unmanaged index and includes a representative sample of large-cap U.S. companies in leading industries, an investment may not be made directly in an index. Examples cited or hypothetical, are for illustrative purposes only, are not guaranteed, and subject to potential federal and state law amendments. There is no guarantee that you will achieve the results discussed or illustrated. Diversification strategies do not ensure a profit and cannot protect against losses in a declining market. NASDAQ Composite Index is an unmanaged index and measures all NASDAQ domestic and international-based common stocks listed on the NASDAQ. An investment may not be made directly in an index. Christopher Paniotu is a registered representative with and Securities and Advisory Services offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor and member FINRA SIPC. The investment professionals are affiliated with LPL Financial and are conducting business using the name Capitalize Your Finances, a separate entity from LPL Financial. Gautam Bade and any other individual or company mentioned in this podcast are not affiliated with Capitalize Your Finances or LPL Financial.